I want to show you something now, right? Look behind you. Okay. Look at that typewriter. That's okay. mine. <laughs> that is mine, bruv. Is that where it all started? That's where it all started. I think it's almost 100 years old. Can you remember the first thing you typed on it? Yes, I, I can actually. The first full poem I typed on it was a load of rubbish. But I just wanted to prove a point. And it goes, Wonder, wonder why I live My heart and soul to life I give Upon the wetted grass I lie If death should call me, if I should die In vain I stride for need and require No smoke can dark my burning fire Cool breeze I desire Strong winds to take me higher than the fire It just goes on like that, right? But the reason why I typed it was because In those days, about 11 o'clock The BBC would say, now people, it's time to go to bed yeah. <laughs> they used to go, good night, turn off the electricity, plug things out. And they used to read a poem. So I sent a poem in. I sent that poem in. I was only a kid at the time. Did it get read out? Yeah, and this BBC man read it, you know, wonder, wonder why I live. And then they had this debate about this elderly gentleman that wrote this poem. And me and my family were sitting at home laughing our heads off. And I wrote it on that typewriter. I'm the writer and poet Benjamin Zephaniah here at the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. And I'm Robert Evans, and this is Meet Me, me at, at the Museum. museum. It's a wonderful place, I think, now. But when I was young, it was really scary. You've got these old buildings, and they've got great big bricks. And I used to look at them and think, how were they made? What kind of men and women put this stuff together? And it's a cold day, and the clock tower is... Is that the right time? Yeah, exactly. It's actually got the right time. Oh, the person you can hear is uh, my friend Robert. I I used to hang out with, actually, me and his dad were best friends, so I've known Robert since he was a kid. But uh, are you all right? Yeah, I'm good. You're not cold? I'm getting there. Uh, uh, (laughs) I've got a lovely long jacket on. and uh, I've got a few layers on underneath. Oh, okay, all right. The last time I was here, actually, I came for a couple of meetings and it was all about how to make museums, especially a big kind of almost stately home they have in Aston, how to make it relevant to the community there. And that's a big thing I feel passionate about, making these places relevant to the people today. So, Robert, um, how do you remember this place? You don't really take much notice when you're a child, but no. looking at it now, I'm starting to see, like you said, the, you know, the effort that went into the it. The work that's gone into the it. The effort and all that. I mean, how old is it? It's a bit older than me and your dad. <laughs> I'd say so. <laughs> anyway, you, you're going to go inside? Yeah, we'll go inside. Let's do it, because it's cold out here. Get, yeah, it's getting cold now. So we are now in the reception. It's so boomy. Boom. You could do some toast in here. <laughs> live the life you love and love the life you live, as I would tell you about the song that come and don't lead the way, as I would say, what? That's if you're into your reggae. If you're not, and you're just into museums, we're in the reception, and uh, there's kind of posters on the wall telling us about world cultures, Birmingham history, ancient civilizations, pre-Raphaelite. I love that word, a Raphaelite. And we have to say there's no one here today, is there? No. No, we have the museum to ourselves, more or less. Yes. Isn't that amazing? That would be a new one on all of us, I think. I know. Now we're going to go up these uh, really grand stone steps. I was going to say marble, but there's some marble around. Oh, I just love these old buildings. 
But how long ago was it since you've been oh, here? I brought my children here about, I was thinking about it, about 18 years ago. Would have been 18 the last years time, ago? Yeah, it would have been the last time I come in here. Right. But they would have been making a lot of noise coming up these stairs. Dad, what's going to be up here? What's coming up here? And did you say, oh, you've got to be quiet? It's yeah, the museum. that's it's, what it was. Quiet, the... we're going into the museum I don't now. think it's like that anymore. Kids don't have to be quiet in museums anymore, I don't think. When you were a kid, did you come here? When I mean, when you were a yeah. baby? Yeah, my mum my brought me here when I was really young. Right. Would have been about 85, 86. Right. So now we are at this kind of reception desk where normally it would be really busy with people kind of handing over their national art parts. You get discounts when you go to paid-for exhibitions and you get 10% off in their cafes and their eating places. So, Robert, how old are you? 41 now. 41? Yeah. Oh, how good it is to be young. You see, as you probably know, you've probably heard all the stories, like, I used to hang out with your dad when we were like 13, 14, 15, right up to our kind of late teens. I mean, your dad was unique because your dad was the only white guy hanging out with all these black guys. I just remember him, you know. And, but he was like really into reggae. I remember me and Trevor were like really embarrassed. We went into his house and um, this little white kid played us all this Jamaican reggae stuff and he would be telling us stories about... I mean, Bob Marley wasn't famous then. Bob Marley and his life story and the different reggae singers. And me and my brother were looking at him and going, this is white dude really knows his reggae story. And I have, like, real special memories of growing up in Birmingham. And although I don't live in Birmingham now, every time I kind of arrive, they all come back. Yeah, yeah. And I took Birmingham for granted. And every time I used to come in this area, I used to look at the buildings and the museum and everything, and it was just another world for me. There was a part of me that kind of resented it. I kind of felt that this was for the special people, the people with money, the people yeah. with times on their hand. So then when I grew up, I left Birmingham because I wanted to be a writer. And you know my story. I mean, I got in trouble with the police, I went to prison and all that stuff. And I felt that the only way to kind of better myself was to move out to Birmingham and go down to London. And when I went down to London originally, I kind of hated Birmingham. It was like, it was where all the police were. It, it was where all those white people that hated me were, you know. All those buildings that I didn't like that I felt oppressed me. Okay. And then when I got to London, everybody mocked my accent and laughed at me. Is there a word for patriotic to a city? If you know what I mean. Maybe there's not, but, you know, I got more brummy. Yeah, yeah. I would just get very defensive over Birmingham. And then I just started to learn more about Birmingham. Then I started coming back and started visiting the museums. And then I just got really interested in the history of Birmingham. So the reason why I wanted you to come here and meet me here, meet me at the museum, was because I wanted to kind of exchange notes with you in a, in a, in a sense. First of all, about Birmingham generally, and then about the museum and your memories of coming here. So when I said to you, meet me at the museum, did you go, yeah, wow, yeah, I'm really looking <laughs> well, forward to it. Or did you go, why Benjamin sending me to the well, museum? Well, to be fair, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, because otherwise I probably might not have come here for another 20 years. Right. So it's done me a favour in a way. Uh, yeah, because, like, I mean, I'm old enough now, I haven't got the kids around me, I can actually have a look at some of the things that are around instead of worrying about the kids. I think I just want to get a taste of Birmingham. I just want to see some characters from Birmingham, a sense of... Uh, 
history, not just artefacts. Artefacts is one thing, but I like the stories behind them. So it'd be nice to see some of the comparisons we've got from different generations, like some of the things that you've done in your life and I've done in mine, and we can compare them. Yeah, all together in Birmingham. So let's go then. So, Robert, this is the exhibition I wanted you to see, or one of them, and it's called Birmingham Revolution's Power to the People. So come in. And here we are. So this gallery is basically about protest and uh, kind of uh, protest movements in Birmingham that have kind of made its mark on the city. I'm looking over there. Let's have a look over here quickly. All these photographs of... um, the riots and demonstrations in Birmingham. Actually, I'd left Birmingham by this time. But the thing was, they were happening in London and Manchester and, and Liverpool and places like that anyway. I mean, it was kind of an, a national thing. But you were a bit young for this, wasn't you? Yeah. I do kind of yeah. remember the riots. You remember the riots? I remember the riots yeah. from the eight, about 85, yeah. 86. Um, I remember I was, I was looking like this. Lozells Road with a burnt out car and it would have been I'd say the day after or the night before I think that's when the post office got burnt down I think somebody got killed in it maybe if I remember yeah. correctly but yeah I remember getting we had to come out of school early we all had to come out of school early because the riots had got so out of hand and there's a picture of you looking younger than you do today yes yeah, <laughs> I was younger there's a picture of me with my head in my hands, not in a negative way. What does it say about me? I've never read this. Oh, as one of Britain's most influential writers and poets, Benjamin Zephaniah used the social and political landscape of Birmingham in the 1970s and 1980s to drive his writing. That's absolutely true. Uh, That's what I was saying to you, you know. I used my experiences to kind of inform my writing. I had to, because... I didn't have an education. I didn't have a like. Some people will have a great education, and that's what feeds their writing. So, what you've got, you've got your experiences. Yeah, that that photograph was taken by Pogus Caesar. I can't remember taking it actually, but it's me for sure. He's a great photographer, Pogus Caesar. He's um, done a lot of photographing the black community in Birmingham. I tell you what really frustrates me. I come from this place. I'm not talking about Birmingham now. I'm talking about a particular place in Birmingham with a particular community who are really proud of me. But most of them don't do what I do. They don't visit libraries. They don't visit museums. They don't visit art galleries. And I can't blame them for it sometimes. I think they're so kind of taken up with just getting on with life and struggling and surviving to get on. But um, I had to think really long and hard about who to invite to the museum with me because I know that a lot of people would have just gone, I don't know if I want to go to the museum, Benjamin, what's there for me? You know, it's not just, you know, visiting museums and art galleries. There's people in my family and they will talk about me for ages. They're so proud of me. They haven't read one of my books. (laughs) They're just proud of all these achievements. They're proud of seeing me on television and I think. 
but they've never actually sat down and read one of my books. So we've come over now to uh, one of these display cabinets with um, what looked to me at first as a, a biker's jacket. <laughs> but now looking again, it's all um, a denim waistcoat with, well, in excess of probably 50 badges on. And now I've realised that it's got more to do with the union and the government at the time. And what does that say? Coal, not doll. Yeah, coal, not doll, you see? The minor strike. Now, for us, the minor strike was really, really important. It was like, it was kind of not just the minor strike, it was very symbolic of Margaret Thatcher, who wanted to go one way, and there's no other way of putting this, like working-class people who really wanted to go another way. Working down coal mines is not a nice thing. So it's not just everybody loves working down coal mines, but it wasn't as if she was saying... Right, all you miners, you know, we're going to take you and we have a plan, we're going to train you to do something else. They were just left. So it was like, in my lifetime as well, it was one of the most liberating things for women as well because the miners generally were men and the women were at home. But no, these working-class women came out of the home and started demonstrating alongside men and they started organising. And I did lots of gigs for the minor strike, which were organised by women. Okay. So it was a very, very important moment. Are you look at this jacket. Does that look strange to you? Because I'm going to tell you that people walked around with jackets like that, covered in badges. You know, if you want to meet a girl in the club, you'd go up to her and then you'd look at her badges to see, <laughs> to see where she is politically. That definitely weren't happening you, in my right? time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, check her out politically. You know what I mean? It wasn't polite conversation. It's like, you know, where do you stand on the miners' strike? You know, where do you stand on the Falklands War? Whatever it was, you know. I want to show you something now, right? Come on. Look behind you. Okay. Look at that typewriter. That's okay. mine. <laughs> that is mine, bruv. Is that where it all started? That's where it all started. And I'm going to tell you what happened, right? There I was, minding my own business, playing in Birmingham, in Aston. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, um, and he's like a sergeant major, right? And he goes, young man, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I went, I want to be a poet. He says, you want to be a poet, do you? Wait there a moment. And then he went away and he came back and he gave me this typewriter. Oh, wow. And I could hardly pick it up and carry it. It's so heavy. I think it's almost 100 years old. It's a very clunky typewriter, but I love it. And it's never left me. And I don't know what happened. Somebody in the museum said, would I like to kind of exhibit something? And I said, I've got this typewriter. And uh, they said, we'll have it for two years. And I said, OK. And after two years, I went, can we have it for another two years? So, OK. And then another two years, and it's still here. Can I have my typewriter back? No, no, it's, it's cool. I, I, I feel it's in safe hands. And when I brought it here, I remember when I took it out of my car and one of the tops of the keys fell off. I, I couldn't see it. So I brought it in and I said to the guys at the museum, I said, I've got the typewriter, but one of the keys has fallen off. And I remember a whole heap of people outside. You know, when you're all looking for something, you're all looking for a needle in a haystack. It was like that. Everybody was looking. And eventually they found it and they glued it. So... The museum even 
reconditioned it for me. They got it working properly because it wasn't working very well at the time and fixed the thing for me. So actually, I let them keep it for a bit longer if they like. <laughs> I started getting political at, at quite a young age and I started writing about it, you know, and that was the typewriter I started on. And um, it kind of helped make me the person that I am now. I guess it's saying that, look, there's banners in that room, obviously, and there's um, lots of things that people took on demonstrations. There's badges and all that kind of stuff. There's all these different ways of fighting, and using a typewriter is one. Okay. In the old days, they say the pen. Yeah. The pen is mightier Mighty than the sword. sword. The typewriter is mightier than the sword, okay. you know, because it kind of saved my life. I mean, if I didn't focus on writing as a way of expressing myself personally and politically, I could still be in jail now. You know, I could still be, if not in jail, certainly an outlaw or an outcast. And so that typewriter helped me in my political struggle. It's helped me in my personal struggle. But if you think about the things that I've gone on to do, it has helped create change in Britain. You probably wouldn't know the Sus Law, for example, the Lord of Suspicion. It was a strange law that was brought into deal with vagrants, but the police used to use it against black people as a way of stopping and searching us. Okay. You know, my poetry and organisations I was involved in helped repeal that law. We got that law taken off the statute books. We've done things to help amend the Race Relations Act and bring it into the 21st century. So I guess that's why I, my typewriter's there. I'm just glad it's there. But I do want it back one day. Would you ever use it again? I'm not sure if I'd use it again. It's kind of clunky and it's old. I use it to just show people that it works, yeah. really, you know. Um, but it hasn't got spell checker on it. Oh. <laughs> so now, Robert, I'm going to introduce you to my mate. He's a trustee here. His name is Muhammad Ali. And he may be kind of lighting with intent through these doors if he just walked through. I think he's out here somewhere. Mohammed, brother, how are you going? Benjamin, how's it going, man? I'm cool. good, thanks, bro. It's my friend Robert. Hi, mate. Robert, Robert. Mohammed. How's it going? Let's walk around because there's a, there's a piece that um, I want you to show me. I've heard about it. I just want to see it in person. It's called a booth. Yeah, it's, it's a curry house booth. It's what you many would be familiar with. The typical Tandoori High Street oh, here it is. restaurant, right? And the typical kind of you know old school booth with the old yeah. kind of floral wallpaper and flock wallpaper you know, we're all familiar with. But um, it is a very important part of Birmingham history, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Knights of the Raj was in a four-month-long exhibition where I'd recorded stories, collected objects documented Birmingham's historic curry trade. Oh, so this booth is like... A part of yeah, that. Yeah, the, there was a much wider exhibition. Right. Huge, it was great. And then this was the last thing that was right. kept permanently. Right. So, Robert, normally people can't go in here, right? But me and you, we're VIPs, right? Let's sneak over. I don't think Mohammed's going to say anything. Let's go over. I've been dying to get in there. Right. I've now you go and see about getting my sandwiches out. Sandwiches? <laughs> you go and sit over well, there. We're not going to get served a curry today. Right. Now, if you were going to have a meal, what would you have? 
I like the spinach, um, some sort of spinach curry. I would have, yeah, spinach, sargaloo. That's the one. And uh, chana and chanikidar. Oh, Mohammed, what are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, I'm just taking your order, mate. What would you like? No, no trouble from you guys, I hope, today. It's, it's a great yeah, place. Yeah. I mean, you've gone into a lot of detail here, haven't you, to make it really realistic. For me, this kind of ornate floral wallpaper, mm. you know, these kind of golden frames and the sequins you see sparkling, this, it's almost kind of uh, Mughal-inspired interiors yes. that you see and, the, you know, the golden lampshade. I kind of wanted to, to kind of capture that, you know, this world that we are increasingly seeing disappear, actually. You know, the, these, these interiors you don't see, no. uh, we take it for granted, but they are disappearing off our high streets. So I wanted to get this ornate decor and things that we're all familiar with and actually kind of capture it before it's all gone completely. I'll be honest with you, even sitting in this booth, it, for me, it evokes a sense of yeah. quite an emotion, actually, because yeah. you remember such fun moments of, of you know, uh, of, of being in this space. And, of course, uh, for me and my father, memories of my father as well, serving at these tables to customers. You know, as just as you guys are sitting here, I, right, I was here with my notebook, you know what I mean? And so did you at, actually used to take orders? Since I was 11 years old, I was, I've been in the restaurant trade. Right. This isn't just eye candy, some yeah, fluffy, this is, fluffy interiors for people to reminisce. This is deep for you. This is deep. This is yeah. about generations of, of young people who had to adopt to, to British society. And those are the important yeah. stories that our museums must capture yeah. so that we can show society how relevant museums are yeah. for, for society. Otherwise, they just become these fluffy places you go and have a good time when it's raining. Mohammed really is a street artist. He started as a graffiti artist. Yeah? Absolutely. That's where you started. I think the first time I heard of you, I think the police told me about you. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about outlaws in the city, and you were one of them. But, yeah, tell us about how you started. It's been a bit of an uh, interesting journey because, like you said, I would never imagine that starting off as a graffiti artist kind of through the 80s, being an 80s kid mm. and being inspired by hip-hop culture, I would never imagine two decades later now I'm a trustee of my city museum, Birmingham right. Museum and Art Gallery. When you started doing graffiti on the streets, what were you trying to do? To really cut to the core, it was about saying, I exist. I mean, that's in essence what any street artist or cave artist going back tens right. of thousands of years yeah. was saying, I am me. Uh, what do you think your role is now here? I almost see it as a continuation. Graffiti and the museum, I don't see them as two different things. We're continuing to tell stories. We're continuing to take art and make it accessible to the everyday people. As a graffiti artist, I was doing the same. I was taking art literally into people's lives, bringing a bit of colour into the concrete jungle. And in essence, me being a trustee here now, it's about taking, you know, this, this space of his heritage and the arts and letting it kind of penetrate the lives of everyday people in the city. So what are you doing now in terms of your work to make the museum be more inclusive and representative of the people of Birmingham? I'm very passionate about my city of Birmingham. I'm an artist that's still based here. Mm. And I realised with my art as I'm travelling around and I'm benefiting other societies... I realise I have to bring my, what I can to the table for the museum. So I'm very, very passionate about changing things so that the museum is truly reflective because we don't see it in our museums. These communities out there, they aren't really seeing this as something that belongs to them. 
And I want to address that. Only up until a few months ago, being the only non-white person on the board, which now has changed where, right. to the point where I was on the panel and I was very honoured, really, to be selecting the new two chief execs that are now in post that happened to be two people of colour. Right. We're in a room that says it's 18th and 19th century art, but in fact, we are standing in front of work, three pieces by an artist called Cold War Steve. Do you know him? Have you ever heard of I've him? I've never heard of him before. Now, he is amazing, right? He's this cat that kind of started doing kind of collages on Twitter and online. And he just does crazy stuff. I mean, in, in almost every one of his stuff, you'll find, like, look at this, you know, Boris Johnson and Putin. Yeah. <laughs> right? And he just, he just takes these politicians and puts them in crazy... Look at this Donald Trump running. They're all naked or semi-naked. To me, he says so much about kind of modern life in a very kind of simple, not simplistic, but a simple, not childish, but childlike way. I I just really like his stuff. And like I say, usually he's just politicians. But if you look at this one, so now we're in front of a a big collage of Cold War Steve's called Benny's Babies. Babies being the brummy word for babies. It's in the city centre, but it's a whole mishmash of things. So we've got the HP Source building. And look, there's me. Yeah. Like, I'm there, like, I'm in the museum. He's got so much of Birmingham in there, and then all these Birmingham characters who... Young and old. Yes. Musical youth, do you remember them? Wow. Past the Dutchy Pandy left and side. Past the Dutchy Pandy left. I just love it. Who's out there? Oh, it's Steel Pulse. Oh, is it? Greatest reggae band to ever come out of Birmingham, out of Handsworth, and they're up there all by mates. I remember seeing them play at a gig in their school uniform. They literally just come from school. <laughs> they didn't change. Now they're one of the biggest reggae bands in the world. Is that Ozzy Osbourne up there? This is the Rotunda, right? This is the famous round building in Birmingham. Yes, that's um, Ozzy Osbourne. That's Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. In fact, one of the houses I used to live in, Aston, right, if you went down my back garden and climbed over the fence, you landed in Ozzy Osbourne's garden. Okay. Yeah. The more you look at this, the more you see characters that you know. The whole like, generation gap in here. I mean, like I say, you've got some of the young rappers, Miss, Lady Leisha, and then you've got yourself in between them all. Yeah. Um, some of these people I didn't even realise were from Birmingham. But it's more the HP Source Tower. I mean, I remember that growing up in Newtown and Aston, like the smell. Yeah. It was like a vinegary smell. And it depended which way the wind was blowing that day, whether yes. you get it in Newtown <laughs> yeah. or whether yeah. you get it in Neutrals. Yeah. I too remember the smell of HP sauce, yeah. It was also Ansel's Brewery, the yeah, beer brewery. You don't remember, remember that? that. No, it's uh, a bit before so my time. Some days you get the smell of the HP sauce and the next day you get the smell of the brewery, the beer. Yeah. Look at that, Don Christie's. That's the reggae record shop, yeah, isn't it? yeah. yeah. But you're right, this is kind of very multi-generational. I mean, a lot of these people wouldn't naturally be together in the same time. In the same. Never. But it's, it's, just, it's just a good, fun representation of Birmingham. OK, so we've just stepped into the Faith in Birmingham room. There's some glass cabinets with artefacts from all different faiths. So, Robert, are you religious in any way? Um, I was brought up a Catholic... 
I'm not too sure. I think the answer's no. <laughs> <laughs> I still look up when I do something wrong. <laughs> you look up when you do something wrong? Yeah. <laughs> I look behind me before I run. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I'm interested in faith. I'm not, I'm not particularly re- religious. I kind of believe in God without religion, if you know what I mean. Okay, I, I think that. religion is man-made. But I'm interested in why people are religious and what religion does to a city and does to a community. I've always believed that... Everyone needs somebody to look up to. That's an interesting way of putting it. Isn't it really interesting that we kind of just automatically kind of ended in front of the Rastafarian exhibit cabinet? Rastafarianism was really important for me. I mean, I kind of was raised a Christian. Rastafarianism, if you like, is a kind of continuation of Christianity. And so, yeah, it's interesting that we just stop here because Rastas don't really have that many artefacts. We don't really believe in or lots of material stuff. And it's such a broad church as well. So it's interesting to see that they've got this here. And it's very good inclusiveness, you know what I mean? Well, we have... I'm not sure what that thing is. Uh... Hi, guys. So, Hello. Um, I'm Lindsay Rutter. I'm one of the learning managers here at the museum. I project manage the creation of the gallery that you're in now, the right. Fifth in Birmingham Gallery. So you've obviously noticed a few of the, the Rastafari objects you were yeah, watching a yeah. ago. But I'm a little bit confused because that, that's Sikh, isn't it? Yeah, so the oh. idea with each of these cases, it's a mix of religions all, all together. Oh, I see. What we didn't want to do with the exhibition was to have this faith here and this faith here. It's right. um, to show the interfaith community of the city. So that, is that the Golden Temple? Yes, that's the Golden I've Temple there. in the centre. Wow, really? Yeah, it is a special place. Religions, I, uh, I don't know, I think the religions are just people's traditions and the way of looking up in the sky and asking who we are and where we came from and how we got here. And it's always going to be informed by your culture. Mm, definitely. So, so yeah. 90% of people who are religious, it's almost an accident of birth. And that's one of the reasons we call it the faith in Birmingham, actually. Faith rather than religion. Right. Because a lot of the objects in here and the stories we're trying to tell is about how faith plays a role in your life mm. that's you know, sort of food and activities and yeah. coming together rather than what you believe in and what you pray to. Right. It's, it's more about um, how you practice it with your community. That was the idea behind it. Brilliant. If I take you over to the centre of um, the gallery, to an object that if you've grown up in Birmingham, if you've been here many times, you'll have seen before, and that's the Salt and Ganj Buddha. Actually, I haven't. You, you haven't? No. You shot me. So this is um, probably one of the most important objects in the museum and one of the oldest. It was the second object to come into the museum. So it's the Sultan Ganj Buddha. It's the 7th century bronze standing um, Buddha from northern India. I've got, I got to tell you, I've got to be really honest with you. I wonder, how did you get it? Where did you get it from? So it's from northern India. So wasn't it was, stolen, was it? It wasn't stolen, right. but it's a product of colonialism, it's right. fair to say. So um, when the British were blasting for railway ballast, mm. they discovered this um, statue buried in the ground. Obviously uncovered it. It was then on display for a short time before being bought by Samuel Thornton, a magistrate from Birmingham, and brought here. So it was paid for. Right. Um, I wouldn't claim to say it was paid for by you know, a rate that we would yeah, consider yeah. today. And it's been here for over 130 years. It's been in the museum for... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Longer than my typewriter. That's amazing. <laughs> a little bit, long, <laughs> little bit longer. <laughs> uh, when you say he was buried in the ground, was mm. it the locals that were hiding yes, him or something? that is exactly right. right. So the Buddhist monasteries came under attack. 
So they hid their precious possessions. By the to, British? To, no, no, no. This oh. is way before the British. Oh, I see. Uh, and it lay, because it lay buried for about 500 years. So this right. is pre, okay. um, pre-British. While it's here, it's well used. So we have Buddha Day here mm. every year. And mm. the Buddhist community of the city come together to venerate the statue, to worship it. Right. And yeah, this room is packed. You'll have to imagine it. Packed wow. with chanting monks um, and flowers. Yeah. Beautiful. Really lovely. You can't change the past. I always say to people, when we talk about Black Lives Matter and the inclusion of black history in the story of all of us, is that we are not attacking white people who are alive now and saying, you did this. You know, your ancestors may have did this. My ancestors did some bad things too. The history of black or Asian people is not all beautiful. We've got our dictators, <laughs> you know, we've had our rapists, we've had our massacres and everything else. But you've got to be honest about it. That's all we're asking, really, just to be honest about it. And I think as long as museums can understand that, they can start having a dialogue with us and also with people internationally. There are some artefacts that I think, personally, with the bigger museums that should be back home in their place. They're completely out of context, especially when it comes to worship and stuff like that. There's a way, because we're all connected now, of having museums linked internationally around the world That's a win-win for everybody, and nobody's got to walk around feeling guilty. Lindsay, um, have you got a favourite spot in this room that that you're drawn to? I do, yes. Yeah, let me take you over to it, just a short way. So my favourite object are these Jewish cookbooks. For me, these are really... um, a beautiful reflection of what faith means to people in their everyday life. Mm. So the top cookbook is um, a modern Jewish cookbook owned by a local woman in Birmingham, mm. and the bottom one is from her mother. Whoa. And as she left for university, her mum handed her the modern cookbook and said, look, it's over to you now. Mm. It's, you, you need to carry on these traditions. And it's a beautiful symbol of their faith practised in everyday life and right. really relatable because I cook every day and I yeah. use cookbooks. And So, yeah, that really speaks to me. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? I thought you were going to show me like a thousand-year-old statue or something. Yeah, um, yeah, you'd but, think but, a yeah. museum person yeah. would pick that, but um, <laughs> I think that's the beauty of this gallery is we've got statues that are internationally important, thousands right. of years old, right. alongside um, someone's cookbook from, from right. nearby, and I think that's the special thing that museums can do is to bring to life the internationally important next to someone's cookbook, next to someone's clothing or necklace. I'm interested in religion anyway. I'm interested in why people are religious and how religions come about. But with all that stuff, for some reason, I, I'm, I'm drawn to this place. It's the street pastors. Yeah. I mean, that, that cult looked like it come from... Um, go outdoors. Yeah, yeah, go outdoors, something like that. <laughs> yeah, trespass. Why are they here? Oh, yeah, this is another lovely piece. So Gerald, um, the gentleman that gave us um, this outfit, he um, volunteers as a street pastor. Mm. So what street pastors do, go into the community and try and make a difference in their own way. Yeah. Um, and this is his, his coat that he would wear to do that. Um, so, so what are you wearing now? You ain't got a coat now. I mean, I hope he has something else. <laughs> yeah. He's walking around going, i think got to get my to. coat from that museum. <laughs> yeah, I think he had more than one. I mean, that is, it's incredibly generous. And yes. a lot of objects in here are donated and loaned. And they are people's precious items, so we're just so grateful that people would would give them to us for a short time. Brilliant. (laughs) When I come over the Aston Expressway and I see Fort Dunlop on the right, then I see Aston Hall and Villa Park, 
And then I had this very special feeling like I'm home. Okay. This is the place I know the best. And I don't get that feeling anywhere else. You I know? get that. Even though I've lived in other places. For, I've lived outside Birmingham now longer than I've lived in Birmingham. And I do the maths. I mean, I'm quite proud of this museum, which is strange. Like I said before, I, before I didn't like it. It's just this big building and it, it didn't seem to connect to me. But now I'm quite proud of it. And I'm quite proud to kind of be in there. I mean, every time I come here, there's a picture of me somewhere or some mention of me. So I dragged you here today to meet me at the museum, taking you around now. Was it worthwhile? Did you enjoy it? I've had a brilliant day. I cool. really have had a brilliant day. It was great spending time with you and getting to see the, the museum as a grown-up. Right. It is more diverse now than it was before. Right. One thing I found out today is that that's our upbringings. It was a bit more similar than I thought. And perhaps not to your personal experiences, but when you mentioned about what my dad was like when he was younger, I think like, my life's been very similar. Right. So, from our conversation and from what you're seeing here and the things that protest and all that stuff, um, you can identify with your father more. Well, yeah, because I, I never seen that side of him. Right. You know, it, like, I never really seen that Rastaman side of my dad, if, if right. you get what I'm saying. I and mean, the stuff I remember with your dad is just... Really being, as kids, it was just like, go out and, and have fun. And, have fun. Yeah. and we used to get lost. We used to, you know, we used to have fights. We used to discover old houses that we'd explore and stuff like yeah. this. I mean, I, I just don't hear kids having those kind of adventures now. I don't even remember coming to the museum with my school. I think my school was so poor, we didn't do anything like that. And uh, But just generally speaking, even the city centre was a kind of hostile territory. But look how we've been welcomed here. Yeah. Staff have been so nice. I mean, I've had a really good day. It would have been great if we got real Korean lager at the uh, booth. And vegan <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Meet Me at the Museum with me, Benjamin Zephaniah and me, Robert Evans at the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery. If you liked this episode of the podcast, please rate, subscribe or just tell a friend. And you can show your love for museums with a National Arts Pass. It gives you great benefits at venues while raising money to support them. <laughs> <laughs>